This morning, uh, we are continuing through our study of Romans and looking, actually beginning the, the 11th chapter this morning. And I'm excited to, to jump into this and study God's Word with you this morning. So look with me at Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected His people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant, chosen by grace. But if it is by grace... It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Pray with me. God, as we come to your word, we come having sung the songs that we've, that we've sang. We, we sing them knowing, reminding ourselves, reminding one another, praising you that you have a grace that is greater than all our sin. A grace that has power to pardon and to cleanse us deep within us. And Father, we have prayed and called out to You, our Savior, that You would lead us like a shepherd, that You would teach us Your Word. And so, Father, now, having sung these things, having prayed these things, having praised You for these things, we now come to Your Word ready to hear from You. And so teach us these things. Father, we pray with the Puritans, God, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. You know, one of the things I, I love about Scripture, one of the things I'm thankful for when it comes to Scripture, is its brutal honesty. I mean, the, the Bible doesn't pull its punches when it's talking about the facts. It, it gives us this, this sort of dirty and, and grimy images that expose our sin. Images like the, the Old Testament version of leprosy, where pieces of skin and, and appendages are literally falling off people, which God says, that's what sin does to you. This, this Bible holds up a mirror to us that we may see who we truly are in our broken and sinful state. But it also doesn't hold anything back when, when talking about the grace of God. How, despite how truly undeserving of salvation we are, we receive more than we could ever imagine. And while all of this is true, there is still one more area where the Bible is, I believe, brutally honest. The Bible actually knows how difficult certain parts of the Bible are. Isn't that comforting? So when you and I come to hard passages of Scripture, the Bible says, yeah, we get it. <laughs> it's hard. I mean, for example, we, we can listen to what Peter wrote to the church in 2 Peter. He writes these things, and he's talking to them about the letters that Paul has already written, letters that we have in our New Testament. And this is what Peter tells the church. There are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. 
which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. I, mean, I, I love that because even the mighty apostle Peter read the words of Paul and thought, that's hard. That's difficult to understand. And I can't help but wonder if the letters or the chapters that Peter was talking about when he wrote those words didn't include Romans 11. I mean, we've been in Romans for over a year now, and we've come across our fair share of difficult passages. I mean, even within the last two months, as we've been looking at Romans 9 and Romans 10, we've had a, a burden of difficulty as we've walked through these chapters together. But to take a page out of the Bible, I, I want to be brutally honest with you as we begin this new chapter, and I believe, I'll admit to you, that I think Romans 11 may be the most difficult chapter in the entire book of Romans. It's just hard. It's hard not only to understand, it's hard to put into practice, it's hard to know what this ma why this matters to us, and, and it's going to be hard, it's going to take time for us to work our way through it, and that's okay. Because I still want us to. And it's still worth our time. The fact of the matter is, there are pastors who will preach through this entire book of Romans and get to chapter 11 and make some comment like, it's really difficult for us to understand. There's not much in it for us, so let's move on to chapter 12. We're not doing that. <laughs> Romans 11 is just as much God's Word as Romans 10 and Romans 12 is, and so we're going to stick with it. Because even though it's difficult, Romans 11 is a rich chapter of Scripture and one that we would be foolish to just jump over. I mean, you notice, if you have your Bibles still open, which I hope you do, go to the very end of Romans 11. Notice how Romans 11 ends. Because Paul, he, he's, he knows that this subject is difficult. He knows that it's hard to understand. And yet, the way that it ends tells us exactly what it does in the heart of Paul as he writes it down. The ending of Romans 11, it says this, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. while we can understand that this is a difficult doctrine and a difficult chapter for us to, to wade our way through, I want you to see the ending because this means it's worth it. Because Paul, as he's writing these things down, knowing the difficulty, knowing the burden of Romans 11, he ends it with worship. An understanding of who God is. Who could understand His ways? Who could, who could search and explain his judgments and the why and why he does the things that he does. No one can. And yet for him and through him and to him are all things and to him be glory forever. Amen. See Romans 11 does just that. While it's difficult, it the goal of Romans 11 is for you and I to reach the same conclusion that Paul reaches, to be at a place where we are amazed and dumbfounded and silent at the glory of God at who He is and all that He's done. And so as we come into this chapter, there's one central question that's being asked by Paul, and it's being asked in the very first verse. Has God 
rejected his people. And so this morning, we're going to begin a a two-part study on the first ten verses, looking to understand how Paul answers that question. And this morning, we're going to study the, the first six verses here, where Paul gives three reasons for us to answer this question, no. Has God rejected his people? No. And Paul's going to give us three proofs, three reasons why this is so. And those three reasons are a personal proof, scriptural support, and ultimately God's grace. So let's walk through these together. First, personal proof. You see, Romans 11 cannot be properly understood without Romans 9 and 10. And in fact, Romans 11, some have argued, is the conclusion and the summary of everything that Paul's been building regarding Israel and their relationship to God in light of their rejection of Jesus as Messiah. Now, we've been with it over the last several months, so let me give you a quick recap of Romans 9 and 10. Romans 9, the main point was that God's Word had not failed Israel. For there is an Israel within Israel, a chosen few, a remnant among Israel that remains faithful and believes in Jesus as Messiah despite the majority of Israel rejecting Him. And then in Romans 10, the main point of that chapter was that Israel's rejection of Jesus was not because they did not hear the good news, and it wasn't because they didn't understand the good news, but they did in fact hear it. And they did in fact understand it. And yet, still, they rejected it. But chapter 10 ended, if you remember last week, if not, go up to the first verse before, or the last verse before ours started. And the chapter 10 ends in a quote from Isaiah where God says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and to a contrary people. He's showing that Israel is not ignorant of God's plan of salvation. They've just outright denied it. And so we have this picture of God, of Israel, this disobedient and contrary people who are telling God, no, that's not how this works. And God's saying all day long, he's held out his hands to a people who are disobedient and contrary, who are against what he's doing. And so Romans 11 opens up with what I believe to be an understandable question. If God is holding out his hands and Israel is continuing to be disobedient and contrary, then does that mean God has rejected them? If they've rejected him, what's to stop him from rejecting them? And so if they rejected the gospel and the gospel has gone to the Gentiles, leaving Israel cut off and accursed, are they rejected? And Paul wastes no time in answering this. The very next sentence is his famous reply to these hypothetical questions. By no means. It is as emphatic as he can possibly be. By no means has God rejected Israel. And to prove this, he begins by pointing to himself this personal proof that he gives. You see, Paul belonged to Israel. He was a physical descendant, a biological descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And more than that, Paul belonged to Christ. He is living proof that God had not rejected Israel and he wasn't the only Jew who believed in Jesus. There were countless Jews who had placed faith in Christ from the beginning. We must not forget as we read these New Testament letters talking about the problems between Jews and Christians, we must not forget that the gospel started with 12 Israel fishermen, with 12 disciples who who belonged to Israel. The gospel started in Jerusalem 
And that everywhere Paul went, he went first to the synagogues, to the Jews, proclaiming the gospel to Israel. And many of them did in fact believe the good news of Jesus. Even the Roman church to whom this letter is written consisted of a a split between Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. So no, God had not rejected His people because there were many who both belonged to Israel and believed in Jesus as Messiah. But we must be careful with the swing of this pendulum. You see, it's not that God has rejected Israel because there are because there are Jews who believe, but it's also not that Israel as a whole is, con- is considered to be in good standing with God because many still do not believe. So let me, let me say that a little bit clearer. Just because there are a handful of Jews who believe in Jesus does not mean that all of Israel belongs to Jesus. And so while Paul is using the small percentage of Israel to say, look, God has not rejected them, he's still holding in the same vein that there's still a large percentage of Israel that are outright denying Jesus as Messiah. But regardless of all of this, and regardless of how many Israel, how many Jews believe and how many stay in, in, in rejection, regardless, the beginning of verse 2 remains true. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. And this verse takes us back to chapter 8, where Paul had given us and was discussing that golden chain of salvation, that those whom He foreknew, He predestined, and those He predestined, He called, and those He called, He justified, and those He justified, He glorified. This, this process that Paul lists out in Romans 8, that this is how God brings people to salvation. And as we were reading those verses in Romans 8, you may remember, you may not, that's okay, but we came to understand that this, this process, this chain of salvation is unbreakable. That those whom God foreknew is, are carried on throughout this chain. They don't start the process and then stop it. That if God foreknew them, then He's going to predestine them. And if He predestined them, He's going to call them. And if He called them, He's going to justify them. And if He justified them, He's going to glorify them. That in God's economy, as He foreknows them and does this, He's going to bring them to the end of it. And so the argument that Paul is making here by drawing us back is he's saying God foreknew Israel. That golden chain he began. He's not going to abandon them. He's not going to reject them now. And while it may not seem like it, while so many of Israel seems to be rejecting the gospel, the point that Paul is making is he's already started that process. It'll just happen in his timing. But that, that word, foreknew, it's such an interesting word. It is a wonderful word that I think as Christians we would do well to really embrace. You see, in English, we, we think that, that this word means nothing more than that God just looked into the future. He knew what was going to happen, so he knew ahead of time the events, and he sort of planned around it. But that's not what this word means. This word runs so much deeper than just God peeking ahead. You see, consider how much the Bible talks about the relationship between a husband and wife. And not just how much of it, but, but what word specifically does the Bible use when it talks about the relationship between a husband and a wife? 
It is the word no. Abraham knew his wife Sarah and then she gave birth to a son. And see, growing up, I always thought that was just the Bible's way of being family and politically correct and not discussing the events of the, of the marital bed, but just using a simple word that everyone kind of understands. We know what happened in there. They knew each other. But I think that misses the beauty of that word. You see, when the Bible says Abraham knew his wife, there is an intimacy, there is a specialness, there is a covenant relationship that exists in that one word, no. He knew her. She knew him. And they knew each other in ways that no one else had ever known them. Because this knowledge existed and took place within the covenant bonds of marriage. Abraham knew his wife. The husband knew his wife. The wife knew her husband. And the beautiful thing about this is that the Bible doesn't waste any time, doesn't, doesn't waste words. It says the result, the fruit of this knowing one another, by God's grace, is a child. Someone else to be known. That this knowing relationship bears fruit. You see, when we understand that, that that's what the word know is entailing, is implying. That's the connotations that come with this word. Then we need to understand that the word foreknew is simply that word know with a first in front of it. He knew first. He knew them before they knew him. He knew them first. You see, God doesn't just peek into the future and know what's coming for his people. God doesn't just look ahead and say, I see how this is going to play out, so let me adapt accordingly. God, when it says that God foreknows Israel, foreknew you, it means that he knew you in this covenant knowledge, this intimate relationship that exists between a husband and wife. God knew you. He knew Israel before Israel ever knew him. And the beauty of this is that this knowledge of God is not limited in any way just because it happened earlier. Which means that when it says that God foreknew Israel, He not only knew her faithfulness, He not only knew what, what would happen down the road, it means He also knew her failures. It means He knew her weaknesses. He knew her rejection. And He knew her, bef he, he knew her before any of it happened. And even knowing all of this would happen, he knew her anyway. To say then that God has rejected Israel would be to say that he has rejected someone that he knew so intimately that he rejected her after placing his covenant love on her. Something that would be absolutely against the character of God. So Paul doesn't just say, no, 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 God hasn't rejected Israel. There's still hope. No, he's saying God wouldn't do that because God can't do that. He cannot act against his own character. And his character is one that when he sets his covenant, unending, steadfast love on you, he will never reject you. Ever. God does not ever walk away from those that he knows like this. And that's what makes this foreknowledge so profound. 
It's, it's just that he knew Israel before, he, before she was a nation. He knew her before she failed. And in that, he loved her and chose her still. How could he reject a people that he had chosen to love by his grace? And the thing is, church, if it, was, if it is true for Israel, then it is also true for you. Because, look, the, the reality is, is that you have, like Israel, failed God in ways too many to count. And you're not alone in that. You don't have to, to sink down in your seat hoping that no one sees you or sees, sees you really listening or, or see, thinking that someone's going to think maybe you're the failure that he's talking about. Because the fact of the matter is, is that I'm the failure that I'm talking about. You and I together have failed God in more ways than we can count. But we don't have to be ashamed of them. And we don't have to hide them. Because the reality is that God not only sees our failures, but that He knew us and knew us in our failures. God chose you before all of this could happen. God looked at you and said, I know that He's going to fail in this. I know that she's going to break here. I know that he's not going to be able to withstand this. I know that she's going to give in to this temptation. But you know what? He's mine. She belongs to me. Which means I'm going to love her through it all. And I'm never going to reject him despite the ways that he may be feeling. Because I knew them first. I mean, there's a hymn that we've sung together as a church. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave His Son to win. His erring child He reconciled and pardoned from His sin. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Do you understand then how deep God's love for His people goes? And it's not because they are faithful and it's not because they hold fast. It's not because we do what is right. But it is simply because He knew us. And He knew us first. And He chose to show us His grace before we could even think about failing. God doesn't reject a people that He foreknew. Not Israel and not you. You never have to fear the rejection of God, believer. Ever. And while personal examples are good, and we should hold to personal examples and use them, like Paul does, we need something still more solid than personal proof, don't we? We need something to stand on to really hold on to this truth. We need Scripture. And Paul not only knows that, he gives us that. He gives us scriptural support after this personal proof. You see, whenever Paul begins a sentence with, Do you not know? It always feels like he's about to say something that I should already know, but I've somehow forgotten. And, and that's exactly what he does here. Do you not know what the Scripture says? And I'm just like, well, Paul, not really. I don't really know what you're talking about, but I'm sure if you give me time, I will. Now, I don't think that, that Paul means this in a way that is, is condescending. I don't think he's calling us foolish or, you should know the Bible better. Except maybe if you were in Galatians. I think there he definitely was condescending to the Galatians. But 
But here, Paul's wording is, is more about assuming familiarity. He's, he's assuming that he's about to say something or reference a passage that we already have some sort of understanding or knowledge of. He's pointing out something that maybe we have foolishly forgotten. So look at, look at verse 2. Let me show you what he does. He says, Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? And then he quotes the passage from, from Elijah. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. Paul is quoting 1 Kings 19, but it's actually the chapter before, 1 Kings 18, that many of us might be a little bit more familiar with. 1 Kings 18 is the story of Elijah versus the prophets of Baal. You know the story where the, they go up on the mountain, they build two prophets, one to, to God and one to Baal, and Elijah says, let's put a sacrifice on each altar, no one doing a flame to either one, and see which God can light their sacrifice on fire first. And so Elijah graciously says, why don't you go first? And so the prophets of Baal gather up and they begin shouting and dancing and praying and doing all of this nonsense gibberish. And of course, nothing happens. And so Elijah, being the gracious prophet that he is, says, well, maybe Baal just went to the bathroom. Maybe, maybe you just need to yell louder. Maybe he just stepped out. Maybe you should leave a voicemail. And so, of course, the prophets of Baal continue to get louder and louder and louder. And this goes on for hours. And so then they give up and they say, well, your God's not any different, Elijah. Let's see what your God can do. And Elijah says, tell you what, let's raise the stakes. And he brings out buckets and buckets and buckets of water and douses everything in water. And not only does that, but then he digs a trench around his altar and fills the trench up with water. So that at this point, the altar is almost floating. And he says, God, your turn. And immediately fire comes down and consumes the entire thing. The altar is burned up. God is shown to be victorious over, over Baal. And immediately following these events, the prophets of Baal are killed. And it's an incredible story, one that I loved hearing growing up. But what's shocking about all of it is the surrounding context, both before and after that event. Because that event happened in one of the darker moments of Israel's history when King Ahab sat on the throne and he's married to a lovely woman named Jezebel. And Jezebel, by her cunning and her deceitfulness and her wickedness, has turned the entire nation of Israel into a Baal-worshipping, idolatrous people. And so when she hears about the events that take place on that mountain, how the prophets of Baal have been killed at Elijah's hand, she sends word to Elijah and says, you better run because I'm coming for you and I will do far worse things than you could ever imagine. And so Elijah does just that. He runs. He runs to Mount Sinai. And he runs and he hides up on this mountain and he's terrified. And he's depressed and he doesn't touch food. He can't have anything to eat. He's overcome with sadness and fear and loneliness and rejection. And he prays. And he prays these words that Paul quotes for us here. Lord, I'm alone. There is no one in Israel except for me that remains faithful to you. There is none. And they are trying to kill me. And this is not some sort of self-righteous prayer. This is not Elijah saying, I'm all you got, God. You better do something quick to save me. 
Elijah actually prays for God to be the one to get it over with. Don't let me fall into Jezebel's hands, God. Why don't you go ahead and take my life? He prays for God to take his life and to get it over with because this loneliness that he feels runs that deep. Because to Elijah, it seemed like Israel was lost. He's all there is. There's nothing and no one left who remains faithful. And when he dies, everything in Israel is gone. I imagine that why the reason that Paul quotes this verse is because he feels what Elijah felt. He, I mean, we've seen in chapter 9 the burden that Paul has for Israel's salvation, how they remain cut off, and he wants to be cut off if it meant they could be brought in. He, he desires their salvation. He wants to proclaim the good news to them, but everywhere he goes, they violently attack him and try to have him killed. I mean, surely it's not a stretch to hear Paul say these words, God, I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. And so while Paul uses himself to prove that God has not rejected Israel, I don't think it's a stretch to see that he, he, that he feels that he might be the only one of Israel that God has saved, just like Elijah. And then he says in verse 4, he gives God's reply in 1 Kings 19. What is God's reply to him? Paul writes, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. God's promise, His reassurance to Elijah in that moment of loneliness is you are not alone. You may not see it, Elijah, but there are 7,000 men among Israel. And I know that's not a big number for a nation, but there are 7,000 men spread out among Israel who have not bent the knee. You're not alone. And so Paul then connects this in verse 5. So too... At the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. You see, Paul not only feels what Elijah felt, he needed to hear God's response to Elijah as if it were spoken to him. Because what Paul sees in 1 Kings 19 is a truth that he applies to the present situation regarding Israel. God has saved a remnant. Israel is not lost. And you know, if, if, if we're honest, if, if I'm honest with you, there are times when I look around at, at churches in our community and in our state and in our country and even around the world, and I wonder how long it's going to be before churches like ours, churches that stand firm on the foundation of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scriptures alone, all to the glory of God alone, churches like that, how long will it be before there's none of them left? How long will it be before we're the last ones? before we reach that same place that Elijah reached. And we're praying out, God, we're it. There's none left. And it's easy in those moments to enter into this state of fear. What will happen then? Will we be able to remain faithful? Will we lose our, our rights? Would we be persecuted if we did? What are we going to do when that day comes? What will become of the gospel then? And it's in those moments that I'm thankful for passages like this. Because God is never without a witness, and the gospel of Jesus is never without someone who proclaims it. And much of church history teaches us the same thing. Consider, for example, the, the Middle Ages, the centuries that led up to the Protestant Reformation. The church is in shambles. 
there are actually two popes that are fighting each other for power. The, the, the Constantinople, what used to be the center of Christianity, has just been lost to the Muslim armies. And Rome is filled with sin and abuse and scandal. Men and women are selling forgiveness for sins through indulgences to whomever has the most money. I mean, it's bad. And there's not a lot of good to be said about the church from that time period. And yet, even in those dark days, God was never without a witness. The gospel was never without a proclaimer. Men like John Wycliffe and John Huss, who, who remained faithful to the teachings of Scripture, who worked, even though it was against the law, who worked diligently to put the Bible in the hands of the common tongue. They held fast to the gospel. They suffered for it. Wycliffe died of, of strokes and illnesses that came on as a result of the stress that came from his, his standing. Huss was burned at the stake as a heretic for the Catholic Church. And yet, what these two men did was light a spark that God would then turn into the Protestant Reformation. And these two men start a fire that would consume all of Europe within a generation. Church, here's the truth. You may be in fear for the future of our nation. You may wonder what's going to happen to our church down the road. I wonder the same. But let's not fear over this. If God can quietly save 7,000 men and keep them from worshiping Baal when the entire nation is doing so, if God can save a remnant from among Israel despite their outright rejection and persecution of the gospel, and if God can save the church from destruction in the dark ages, then he is not powerless to save the church in our current state of affairs. God has always preserved a people for himself and while the world may be without much hope, the church is not. We will always have hope because that hope is not built on our abiding faithfulness. It does not rest on our ability to stand true. But it rests, as does everything else in this world, solely and only on the grace of God. Look, look quickly at verses 5 and 6. Paul says, So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. You see, the reason that Paul can confidently say that God has not rejected his people is because they were never his people on the basis of what they did. They didn't have to earn their spot or keep their spot or risk losing their spot because they worked hard or failed to work hard. The reason Israel belonged to Israel from the very beginning was because God gave them his grace. The reason that God could encourage Elijah with those 7,000 men wasn't because those 7,000 had remained faithful. I mean, notice, notice what it says. God doesn't say, we're down to our last 7,000. Fingers crossed, let's hope for the best. God says, no, 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 Elijah, I have kept 7,000 men who have not been the knee to Baal. That, that word, I have kept, that's God holding these 7,000 men, protecting them, giving them His grace, holding them close to Him. I have kept them. Baal cannot touch them. The reason that Paul has hope for the future salvation of Israel isn't because he's hoping that someone can persuade them to finally believe. 
But his hope for the future of Israel is because is that God is gracious and he alone has the power and the ability to save Israel by his grace. Whether that be just a remnant of 7,000 or the entire nation. You see, the reason that you and I can have such a strong confidence for the future is not, is not because we believe that people can turn things around. History has taught us the exact opposite. People don't turn things around. And it's not because we believe that a, a new election is coming up and if we can just get the right guy into the Oval Office, then everything's going to be fixed. It's not because we have confidence in our ability to remain strong and to remain faithful and resilient. No, the reason that you and I have such a sure confidence and a steadfast hope for our salvation is that it rests in nothing other than grace alone. God doesn't save anyone. Not Israel, not you, not me. God doesn't save anyone by anything other than His grace. And if it were anything else, if even the tiniest drop of works were added to this salvation, it would cease to be grace. It would stop being grace. And it would be something that we must do. But praise God, it's not that way. Church, let me wrap up here by, by showing you why all this matters. Why does, why does chapter 11, 1 through 6 matter to you? First, Paul is able to point to his own life as evidence of God's abiding faithfulness to his people. Are you able to do the same? And I know the answer to that is yes. It should be yes. So then the next question is, are you doing the same? If someone is struggling with their faith and with their marriage, with their sin, with their career, their future, their hope, all of it, any of it, when people around you are hurting and fearful and worried, do you point them to the faithfulness of God that you have witnessed firsthand in your own life? Can you share with them how you've seen Him remain faithful to you throughout it all? Testimony, personal life proof are powerful witnesses to the grace of God. Do not hold back what God has done in you and through you to bring about His glory. Use it, proclaim it, share it, even if it means you are painted in a weak or negative light. Share what God has done to you to encourage others about God's faithfulness, just like Paul did. Because as Paul said in another letter, if my weaknesses make Christ look glorious to someone else, then let me boast all the more in my weaknesses. Second, when Paul read Scripture, he saw himself. He, he read the story of Elijah and he saw the same story being played out in his own life. This is one of the main reasons you, believer, need to read the Bible on your own throughout the week. You need to read it for yourself. Because God's Word speaks directly to you. It holds up a mirror through which you can see yourself as you truly are. And more than that, you can see God for who He truly is. You can read the stories of Israel in the Old Testament. You can see their faithlessness, their sin, their weaknesses. And you should see your weaknesses too. And at the same time, you can read the stories of God's graciousness, His faithfulness, His forgiveness, His strength, and His power to save even the most disobedient and contrary people. Because if God can save Israel, then surely He could save wretches like you and me. The story of Israel is the story of us. We are just like them. 
We're not better than them. We're not worse than them. We are them. And yet the God who remained faithful to His promises in the Old Testament is the same God who remains faithful to His promises today. So believer, read the Word, know the Word, and see yourself in the Word, like Paul did. And third, finally, never forget that it's always been about grace. Always. When you're successful, when your faith is is strong, when your Bible study is going well, and you're learning all these new and wonderful, profound truths about who God is, it is not because you've arrived. It is not because you finally reached the top of that mountain. It is not because you are smarter or more disciplined or more obedient or more faithful than you used to be. It is all because God has been gracious to you. And when you're failing, when your faith looks more like doubt than faith, when you can't even find the time to think about reading your Bible, when you feel far from God and you feel like everything that you try to do falls apart in your hands, it is not a sign that God has rejected you or that He's angry with you or that He's punishing you. But consider these things to be a grace to you. Could it be that God uses our failures to remind us of our weaknesses, of our own inabilities to save ourselves? Could it be that by allowing us to fall, God is showing how capable He is of picking us up? Christian, your entire life is a testimony to the grace of God, whether you realize it or not. It's not that you made the right choice or that you worked really hard or that you believed really sincerely that saves you. It is all by grace and not the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So let grace be grace in your life. Rest in His grace. Celebrate His grace. Proclaim the riches of His grace. There is nothing more wonderful, nothing more marvelous, nothing so great as the grace of God. Never forget what His grace has done and never lose hope that His grace has run out. Pray with me. God, we are thankful for Your Word. Thankful even more for Your grace. May we never lose sight of it. God, if You have not rejected Israel, it means that You will not reject us. And so, Father, we pray that You would hold us fast, tightly, firmly, in Your grips, and that not even one sheep would ever escape the shepherd's hand. Forgive us for our doubts. Forgive us for our failures. Forgive us for our weaknesses. Forgive us for our prides. Forgive us for our strength. Forgive us for our successes that we have boasted in. Teach us in both of these things, in failure and success, to rest in your grace. For it's all we have. And at the same time, it is all we need. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.